Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Never have so many individuals been so actively engaged in trading in the equity markets. Robinhood, Reddit, meme stocks, crypto, blockchain. They're the language of a whole new world of mostly young traders. And most of them will lose money. They think they can outperform some of the smartest guys in the room who have long been humbled by the markets. So back in the early 70s, a group of guys got together to imagine and involve ways to passively participate in the market. Long before the information about the markets had been democratized, long before we checked our portfolio every time we checked our phone, the idea of passive index funds would take hold. And the amazing thing is that even in our hyperbolic financial world today, they are still going strong. In fact, they're so powerful, they alone can move markets. What this all means, whether it's good or bad for markets and the economy, is worth examining. And to do so, I'm joined by our guest, Robin Wigglesworth. Robin Wigglesworth is the global financial correspondent for the Financial Times. He focuses on trends reshaping markets investing in finance. And before joining the Financial Times, he was with Bloomberg. It is my pleasure to welcome Robin Wigglesworth here to talk about his newest work, Trillions, how a band of Wall Street renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. I guess a good place to start when thinking about this is to remind people that most people that invest in the market lose money, number one. And number two, even the smartest guys in the room are humbled every day by the reality of the markets. No, that's a a great point. And it's often what I end up telling friends, family, even colleagues that maybe are sometimes tempted to dabble in the market. Yeah, I talk to these huge hedge fund managers that have been incredibly successful, but you know, even they have really long periods where they do terribly. The markets are they're a humbling machine. They humble people constantly. And you might have a good week, a good month, a good year. Some people might even have a good decade. But in the long run, we know that even professionals do a bad job of beating the market. And the odds on ordinary people doing so are essentially zero. And one of the amazing things is how unwilling people are to believe that. Well, hope springs eternal, right? I mean, I, I've gone on this this new retail trading boom, this frenzy. It, it's a phenomenon. And it is fascinating. I've been covering it as part of my day job. But I go onto these forums and see what people are talking about. And they see index funds as boomer spam, I think is the way they put it. But study after study has shown that you might get lucky. Like some people will make millions, but the vast majority do badly. There was a study in Brazil not so long ago that looked at day traders over a a multi-year period and found out that something like 90% of people lost all their money that they traded with. Another sort of 8% would have made more money if they'd done a minimum wage job at McDonald's instead of trading. And only 2% actually made a bit of money. And even they, you know, that's just luck, really. So this is hard, and people should stay away from it, is my feeling. And talk about what passive investing is, how it grew up, and then we'll get to how it all began in the early 70s with this group of guys that came up with the idea of index funds. Well, if we take the clock back to 1900, that's when a a fairly obscure French mathematician called Louis Bacalier wrote a PhD thesis on the mathematics of speculation. And at the time, 
you know, finance was a little bit grubby, and certainly France, right? They don't like finance very much in France. So he didn't get a great grade. They thought it was kind of a cool, novel, interesting subject to tackle, but, you know, a little bit outside what serious mathematicians tackle. But what he wrote in theory of speculation was groundbreaking. He showed mathematically and argued persuasively that stocks actually move pretty much at random. And at any time, when somebody's buying a stock, somebody who's selling to them must also both think they're getting a good deal. So at any given time, the market is a roughly fairly priced, where most people think is right. And that is the wellspring from which this huge wellspring of research came out, especially in the United States and above all in Chicago, places like Stanford, on how markets are maybe not perfectly efficient because fundamentally humans do dumb things all the time and that manifests itself in markets. But over time, they're efficient enough that they're very hard to beat. They might be wrong, but it's hard to know before the fact what's wrong and what's not. And actually most human managers do a terrible job. And that led to the birth of the first index fund. And talk a little bit about this group of guys that got together back in, I guess, 1971, the idea they had, and how it was received originally. Well, it was not received well, I can tell you that. Uh, The industry absolutely hated it. Uh, It was started by a guy that came from the investment banking world, but he was an unusual member of the fraternity. He was pretty much a fraternity at at the time. So John Mac McCrown was a former farmhand from Illinois to a mechanical engineer. And he worked in the Navy for a bit. He was an engineer on a destroyer before he kind of stumbled into finance, thought it was kind of interesting, and started working on Wall Street. And uh, he found it kind of tedious and not very rigorous. He liked measuring stuff. He was an engineer at a time when engineers were pretty rare in finance. Uh, he also fell in love with computers what they could do. And this was also a time when finance was not particularly interested in computers. So he ended up eventually at Wells Fargo, where the chairman thought that there must be something we can do with computers. Surely all this new technology must allow us to do something better. So he gave essentially young Mac an unlimited budget to go and hire and do whatever he want, wanted. And McCrown basically assembled what I call the, the Manhattan Project, financial economics. So this was just an all-star cast of economists, uh, six of which went on to win Nobel Prizes. Uh, And they together, basically, what they cooked up was the very first index fund in 1971, oddly enough, for Samsonite's pension fund. And explain what an index fund is for our listeners that may not understand. Yeah, no, it's always good to start it from first orders. Um, It's essentially just a fund that does nothing but track or invest in all the stocks in an index. And an index is just a snapshot overall overall market. So you have the entire U.S. stock market, for example. That's several trillion dollars. But some of those stocks are going to be so tiny, they don't really trade that much. So you make these indices that capture snapshot of it. They're the main part of it. So in the United States, the most famous index is probably the Dow Jones Industrial Average. But that only captures 30 stocks. So the most popular index is the S&P 500, and it tracks the name of all the stocks of the 500 biggest companies in America. And an index fund basically just buys all the stocks in that index in perfect accordance to how big they are. So Apple, it buys more of Apple than it does Under Armour, because Apple is, you know, a thousand times bigger. 
And essentially, that's what it is. And because there's no involved, there's no management involved, you don't need traders really that much. You don't need portfolio managers. You don't need an army of analysts that charge a lot of money and, and want to get paid. So they're pretty cheap. And that's one of their core advantages. And of course, that's why Wall Street at the time was not a very big fan of it, because it really didn't involve anybody having to make money for giving advice. No. I mean, who who likes anybody coming into their industry and undercutting them, right? That's not fun. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's remarkable how vitriolic or, and also how dismissive Wall Street was of indexing back in the 70s and 80s, for that matter. I think it boils down to you know, what Upton Sinclair said, that you know, if a man's livelihood depends on him not understanding something, he won't understand it. And Wall Street, to a large extent, felt directly threatened by this. Um, you kind of see investment managers as sort of the, the, almost the center of the ecosystem. We focus a lot on banks and bankers, but asset managers, as they're called, investment groups, they are the ones that pay a lot of the fees on Wall Street. And these funds threaten to reduce those fees across the board, right? They have enormously. You know, the cost of investing is, is dropped precipitously over the past few decades, thanks to the index funds. But of course, the index funds were really a reflection of what was going on in the markets. And if there weren't the other traders and the other things going on in the market, there wouldn't be the need for the index funds in the first place. So in, in, in many ways, there was really room for both. Completely. I mean, you need both because fundamentally and inescapably, index funds are freeloaders off the work that active managers do in finding out the right price for various stocks. And in theory, in theory, uh, if there was if there were no active managers and there was only passive funds, then the, the efficiency of financial markets would break down. The results would be catastrophic, as even Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, uh, one of the big passive funds, uh, once said. However, I struggle to see this as a, a meaningful danger, at least in the foreseeable future. It is by far the, the most popular attack, point of attack from the finance industry itself, especially other active hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers who feel threatened by index funds. But broadly speaking, there are more hedge fund managers, more mutual fund managers, more active traders, day traders now than there ever has been before. So I cannot quite see any signs that markets, whether it's you know Apple stock or Tesla or whatever, is getting dramatically priced differently than it would other have been. So I, I think this is a bit of a red herring, uh, you know, even hedge fund managers, I know, joke that there are more Taco Bell managers in the U.S. than there are. That there are more hedge fund managers than Taco Bell managers in the United <laughs> States. So the idea that this is an industry that is under enormous pressure, I, I have sadly not that much sympathy for. And the, the other part of the equation is how powerful these index funds have become because of the amount of money they have under management. And this is a, a, a concern I have more sympathy with. It's just the economics of indexing means that the big become bigger. And above all, the big three of the industry is State Street, BlackRock, and Vanguard. And they are just colossal. They're titans. But above all, BlackRock and Vanguard. And between them, they manage, I think now, almost $16, $17 trillion 
Well, all of that is in stocks, of course, but it means that BlackRock and Vanguard are essentially the two biggest owners of every major company in America and almost every other major company in the world. And within the next few decades, people think that together with State Street, which has a big exchange-traded fund arm, which is another form of passive, these companies will control close to almost 40% of all the votes on average in U.S. public companies. And even though this is an oligopoly that actually kind of benefits us as consumers because we get lower fees thanks to all this, I, I, it makes me a little bit nervous when you see that kind of gigantism in any industry, let alone one as important as investing. Talk a little bit about what the danger is. What's the worst case scenario that people worry about? Well, one theory that has sort of filtered out from academia and into some active the hallways of government now is something called the common ownership theory, which is, you know, a fancy, almost jargony way of saying that they own a bit of every major company in the world or in an industry. So imagine if you're the CEO of Widgemaker A, uh, you know that your biggest shareholders are all BlackRock and Vanguard, basically, and you know they're also the biggest owner in your rival, Widget Maker B. Now, does that in some way mean that you feel less inclined to uh, compete aggressively on price and service, for example, given that you know your owners don't really care? Because essentially, it's just going to cost both of their companies. So the argument is that this isn't some sort of that in index fund providers are getting into cigar-filled rooms and thrashing out deals that are anti-competitive, but just the fact that some of these companies now own big chunks of every company in every industry. Does that mean that they are less dynamic, less willing to compete? I'm unconvinced by this theory so far, but it is definitely something that, you know, you can see it having a, a, a slight chilling effect on the dynamism of the American economy, for example. And that is something you'd worry about. And then just broadly, investment groups are under pressure to do more in all sorts of areas. And I don't think we should want BlackRock to take a stance on gun control or, or the climate. I think that's better left to elected politicians. Is there a potential destabilizing effect on the markets because of so much concentration? Potentially. I mean, if so far we have, after the financial crisis, tackled, frankly, quite a lot of the stuff that made banks really vulnerable. They are not perfect, but they are better. We saw that in, in the COVID crisis, which almost became a financial crisis last year. Asset managers are just very different companies. They don't borrow money that much themselves, and each fund operates as a sort of almost autonomous little unit. Um, but yes, when they're just so big, right? BlackRock itself is almost $10 trillion of money that it manages. You'd worry about it becoming a target for a cyber attack or just some errant algorithm that goes awry. There are all sorts of potential, unlikely, but still quite scary scenarios you could envisage where size is uh, a danger. These companies that are in the business of index funds are also in other businesses. And in many ways, they're, they're reaping rewards from and also shaping markets. Talk about that dichotomy. Well, essentially, when they're that big, they, they're almost like a center of gravity. You know, right. we, we, our planet revolves around the sun. The sun revolves around a black hole in the middle of the Milky Way, probably, we think. 
Uh, and some of these companies are so big that they become what some academics call focal institutions. And it's kind of an interesting thing that they are, by just sheer dint of their size, they become influential. Then also, frankly, they can pay good salaries. If you look at some of these investment groups, if you look at who works there, it's a roll call of former regulators and government officials. And sometimes those government officials and regulators go back into government. Now, I tend to stay away and avoid some conspiracy theories like the plague, but you know, at some point you just realize that the finance industry is fairly big and it is extremely influential. And people have focused so much on banks because of the financial crisis in 08 that we've kind of forgotten that a large swath of the financial world is made up of asset managers. And there are issues there. There are fault lines that we can see that we even know about that we should do something about. And then there are the, the fault lines we don't even know about that might just reveal themselves in the next big crisis. So I, I think size uh, is, generally speaking, in most industries, not a great thing and something that should be avoided and is going to be a big issue in the investment world probably in the coming decade. To what extent have regulate have the has the Fed and regulators been concerned about the size of of BlackRock and Vanguard? They've been concerned, and I, I have to admit, like in BlackRock and Vanguard and some of the other asset managers' defense after the financial crisis, a lot of people tried to almost sort of copy and paste what they did for banks and too big to fail regulations like Dodd Frank for investment groups. And I actually agree with the industry that that was a little bit facile. An asset manager like BlackRock is not like a bank like JP Morgan, not even an investment bank. There are some things they both do. JP Morgan manages a lot of money, and BlackRock does have some advisors that advise governments, for example. Uh, But they're very different institutions. Uh, But that said, a lot of what they fundamentally do is pretty similar. So bank takes deposits and makes loans. And the NASA manager takes investors and also makes loans or invests in stocks. So they don't use leverage, which is the crucial difference. But there are many areas in that world where we can see problems that have to be solved. And certainly after March 2020, with the COVID crisis, um, the myriad of little cracks, as it were, in the financial edifice that March 2020 revealed that only the Federal Reserve's aggressive intervention uh, basically healed a little bit, but we still probably need to resolve. Talk a little bit about the nexus, if there is one, between this sudden surge in trading that we see that we talked about at the outset and and these index funds, the way in which one potentially or not at all impacts the other. It's a great question because it goes into the heart of some of the other criticisms of, of indexing, and there are many of them. I mean, fundamentally, we've seen these trading frenzies before, most notably in the dot-com bubble. Uh, I think this one's a little bit different because as much as at some point people are going to lose an ungodly amount of money and the retail trading frenzy will die down as it has in the past, trading is free now and it's easy on your phone. Back in the 90s, you didn't have – you had dial-up modems. You didn't have free Wi-Fi. That free trading apps on your phone. So I do think we are in a world where there's just going to be far more ordinary investors trading, even if you know, all the data shows that that is a foolhardy enterprise. And they will also then affect markets more. So it does mean that we see 
little oddities that will affect index funds almost inevitably because index index funds just mimic the market. They're kind of they're passive. They do nothing but mimic market. So when GameStop, for example, went ballistic earlier this year, suddenly it became one of the biggest small companies in America. Even though fundamentally it's still a retailer of video games that is still probably not going to survive out of the decade, let's say. Um, it's, it was valued at you know, tens of billions of dollars. And then index funds had to buy more of that stock and, and then they, you know, join along with the ride. And then eventually, if GameStop and AMC and the other meme stonks, as, as the Reddit crowd calls them, go back, fall back to earth, then it'll hurt index funds. So you can always find examples like that of how ordinary trading and even sometimes hedge funds affect index funds and for the worse. But we also do know that in the long run, index funds still do better in the long run. But yes, the market drops 20%, the index fund is going to drop 20%. But most active managers are actually probably going to do even worse. Right. So I'm you know, watching what's happening, but I'm not too worried quite yet. Right. And it's important to point out for people that, that index funds are not just indexed to the things people may know easily, to the Dow or to the S&P 500, but other indices as well, small cap indices, Russell 2000 indices, that it's not just the big stocks. No, that's a great point. I mean, it's an incredibly diverse ecosystem now. You can buy an index fund that, that tracks uh, the bond market, the price of gold, uh, even some cryptocurrencies, biotech stocks, robotics, or just something plain that tracks the entire U.S. stock market. So you have everything from the world's biggest fund. The biggest fund in the world is an index fund. It's managed by Vanguard, and it's $1.2 trillion. That's bigger than like some of the sovereign wealth funds of the Gulf states. It's more than the reserves of most central banks in the world. That's just one fund, and it costs basically nothing. It's almost free. But that one just tracks all the entire U.S. stock market. It does nothing but track all stocks, big, small, and medium. It doesn't do anything like, that, like anything beyond that. But you can get quite funky with index funds. You can do all sorts of everything from interesting to, I'd say, dangerous things with index funds. Are there index funds that are tracking index funds? I mean, years ago, I mean, I think you have to go back to the 70s with the original idea is a fund of funds. Is there such an animal today? Not quite. There are some quasi-versions of that. So if you go to a financial advisor, um, quite often what they might do is put you in a selection of index funds, which basically kind of function like a fund of index funds. So they will gather, say, well, if you are not going to retire for another 50 years, you want almost all stocks and no bonds, for example, because stocks are greater return in the long run, but they're more volatile. If you're older, they want more bonds, and they'll put you in sometimes into what is called a model portfolio that BlackRock or Vanguard will construct for their advisors for them. Essentially, they say, look, we'll do this service for free for you if, because it generates business for our index funds. So you will be able to get essentially what is an, a fund of index funds. Uh, target date funds are basically that, or the passive ones at least. Uh, but I think at some point you will probably be able to buy a one-stop traded ETF, exchange-traded fund of lots of different ETFs 
that lots of people are going to think are, is absolutely crazy, but it will be sort of the, the best approximation of all markets, bonds, stocks, foreign currency, gold, commodities, real estate, and so on. And, you know, that could be quite an interesting moment for markets, I think. Talk about the economics of these index funds, given that they are not managed and there aren't fees associated with them. Talk about their economics and how they make money. Well, so some of them make money because of they throw off a lot of fees on a big asset base. So that Vanguard fund I mentioned, 1.2 trillion, that charges 0.04%, if I remember correctly. And that is still, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year when it's that big, even though it's dirt cheap. Um, other funds that are smaller typically have a higher price point. So asset managers always try to manage this. There are all sorts of ways they can kind of sweat the money a bit more, make a bit more money. So, for example, most index funds will let like lend out their shares to short sellers, for example. This is what happened a lot in the GameStop uh, saga. And they rent them out, essentially, and get some money in return for it. And it's it's fairly important and part or cog of financial markets that isn't often well enough understood. Uh, but that means that actually on a big fund, you can make enough money from lending out shares. You don't have to charge. So we have seen some fund managers, most prominently Fidelity, actually sell index funds, their own branded index funds, for free. So a management fee of zero. Uh, because essentially they see it as this is a commoditized business. We're a supermarket that sells all sorts of stuff. And if we can get people in through the door by selling beer at cost, maybe we can sell them some crisps at a markup, for example. But it does mean that it's probably never been a better time to be a saver in America than, than right now, because you can actually buy an investment product for free or near free. And that is one of the interesting things, and we're just about out of time. One of the interesting things is that people are getting used to the all of this stuff coming at no cost, whether it's whether it's online trading on their phone or whether it's uh, ETFs. Yeah, and I, I, I'm a bit of a Luddite in this regard, in that I think clearly free index funds is a societal boon Long may it continue, and I hope it becomes a bigger phenomenon. But I, I almost want to go back to the world where actually trading costs a bit of money, but there was some friction. I, I've seen the data, you know, individual people make terrible traders. There are lots of horrific financial stories I've heard over the years, and I think a little bit of friction sometimes is not necessarily a bad thing. Robin Wigglesworth, his book is Trillions. How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. Robin, I thank you so much for spending some time with us today. No, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.